This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Thursday, March 9th. They said her name. Now the whole city is being called out by name. We start here. In a searing report, the Department of Justice accuses Louisville's entire police force of discrimination. This conduct is unacceptable. What they found and what happens next. The Biden White House says the economy is in a good place. When we look at the, da- the, the data, it is not consistent with a recession. So why is Biden's hand-picked Fed chief so nervous? And the dreamers are beginning to deport themselves. I'm done dreaming. I want a real life. With DACA hanging in the balance, more and more young people are giving up on the American experiment. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. In the wake of George Floyd's death a couple of years ago, you started hearing a phrase more and more often at protests. Say their names! Say their names. Because, the thinking went, George Floyd is not the only person of color to be unjustly killed by police. Not even recently. In fact, there was one name invoked early and often. Breonna Taylor was shot and killed by police in Louisville, Kentucky in March of 2020, before anyone knew the name George Floyd. Police shot her in her own home as they barged in to serve a no-knock warrant. And it could just as easily be me as it was her. And it could literally be any of us. To people in Louisville, this did not feel like a one-off incident. In the years since that death, the U.S. Department of Justice has been investigating the Louisville Police Department specifically. And yesterday, the DOJ came forward with its report. What's inside could have profound implications for law enforcement, not just in Louisville, but around the country. So let's start the day with ABC's chief justice correspondent, Pierre Thomas. Pierre, how significant was this report? This really is a stunning report by the Justice Department, the allegations are remarkable on some level. The report concludes that the unit's activities were part of an overall enforcement approach that resulted in significant and unlawful racial disparities. The Attorney General going to Louisville himself to, to deliver a stunning rebuke of what he described as a pattern and practice of abuse and unconstitutional activity by the city of Louisville Police Department. This conduct is unacceptable. It is heartbreaking. At one point, his voice breaking, he described how there was evidence that uh, some uh, Louisville Police Department officers described black people as monkeys, animals, and boy. Wow. And if there's widespread racism here. You see in this report how that could affect real people. They describe supervisors laughing about instances of violence. Um, here, how does a report like this even come together, though? Like, is it people embedded at their offices, or is the DOJ looking through documents? How, how do they arrive at these conclusions? Well, the investigation was launched after the Breonna Taylor controversy. They did what they called a two-year civil rights investigation, looking at the policies of the, the police department, arrest patterns, Um, It's based on thousands of pages of documents, thousands of hours of police body-worn footage, and they claimed that they found examples of, you know, just 
widespread abuse. LMPD has relied heavily on pretextual traffic stops in black neighborhoods. In these stops, officers use the pretense of making a stop for minor traffic offense in order to investigate for other crimes. For example, uh, that black residents were four to five times more likely to be stopped and cited for traffic violations and 50% more likely to be searched than their white counterparts. There was great concern expressed in this report about the use of no-knock warrants, which was was used in the Breonna Taylor case, uh, and they noted that African Americans were disproportionately uh, targeted. More than 60% of no-knock search warrants and forced entries into buildings involved black people. So we're talking about, again, a rather expansive investigation, painting a picture uh, that's quite disturbing. And I think the thing, Brad, if these allegations are true, it would impact how black people in that city live their day-to-day lives in terms of the routine encounters with police. Or maybe even confirming for black folks in the area, like this is why you felt the need to change your behavior over the last several years. Exactly. I don't even know what to think, to know that this... This thing should have never happened and that it took three years for anybody else to say that it shouldn't have. It's, again, the Justice Department taking a deep dive look in a a police department and finding their policies uh, exhibiting bias. Is that a top-down thing, Pierre? Is that a localized thing? Is that a training thing? Like, Because I guess I'm trying to figure out what other cities and other precincts around the country are going to take away from this beyond just Kentucky. Well, the Justice Department under Merrick Garland has been much more willing to engage in these pattern and practice civil rights investigations where they look at departments on a more whole level. But I think the importance of of this investigation is that this is 2023. And to have such allegations involving police department officials allegedly disparaging black people Some of it obviously has to do with the training and uh, the kind of people that are being hired and what supervisors and uh, department leaders are telling their staff about what's acceptable and what's not. All right. That is Pierre Thomas, our chief justice correspondent. Thank you so much, Pierre. Always a pleasure. Next up on Start Here, if you're feeling good about the job market, well, the Fed will see about that. Thank you very much. We're back in a bit. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. 
We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor, you know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So, no compromises here, because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free, then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. Tomorrow morning, we're going to get the latest jobs numbers, which, if it's anything like previous months, could be decent-ish. And usually, you'd want big jobs numbers. That would indicate businesses are healthy, growing. But that's not necessarily what regulators want right now. In fact, they wouldn't hate a few layoffs, if anything, just to keep prices from spiraling ever higher. And this week, as if to prove that philosophy, the Federal Reserve signaled it will raise interest rates yet again. ABC's Elizabeth Schulze covers economic policy. Elizabeth, first off, how significant are these rate hikes? Like, why do they matter? You know, Brad, we have seen the Federal Reserve raise rates at the fastest pace in decades. It's trying to make the cost of borrowing money more expensive to slow down spending from you and me in the economy, from consumers, and from businesses. And this all comes down to this story of inflation. So the the idea is that the Fed has already raised rates by a lot. It's done eight rate hikes in a row. We've talked about it before. And now the Fed is saying, we're probably going to have to do even more rate hikes. We're probably going to have to do bigger rate increases. And rates are going to end up being higher than we had previously thought, because the problem is the economy still is just too hot. There was this period where it looked like inflation was going in the right direction, where the Fed was saying everything's kind of on track. We can slow down this effort. And in the past couple of months, that hasn't really been the case. There's been new inflation data that shows prices are still near these record high levels. The jobs market is really hot. It's at the unemployment rate is still near a 50-year low. So the problem is that the Fed is looking at this recent data and it says, hey, our job is not done yet. We've got a lot more work to do, which means interest rates are going to stay higher and they're going to stay higher for longer. But to do that, Elizabeth, it's almost like you. somebody explained this to me as, as the Fed needs to convince Americans that they feel poorer, that like they feel like they can't go out and spend more money, so they're just going to hold on to it. That kind of cools off the price increase, which is weird to think about. That's also political poison, right, <laughs> to have Americans thinking that they feel worse economically. How is President Biden thinking about this? Because a Fed chair is supposed to be independent of him, but like, the president appoints the guy, right? Right. I mean, there's the message from the White House consistently is that the Fed is independent. They make policy. The White House says it doesn't want to intervene. But there is just no question that what the Fed wants to do puts it at odds with the White House and the message that the president wants to send on the economy. Inflation is extremely high and it's hurting the working people of this country badly. We heard Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell testifying to lawmakers this week in a heated exchange with Senator Elizabeth Warren. Do you know how many people who are currently working, going about their lives, will lose their jobs? I don't, uh, 
I don't have that number in front of me. I will say it's, it's not, it's it's not just an intended consequence. It's well, not but it is, and it's in your report, and that would be about 2 million people. He said that the cost of that isn't as potentially bad as inflation staying high for too long. Wow. That the high prices that Americans are paying becoming entrenched in the economy, sticking around for even longer than we've already seen, that that's going to have more detrimental effects in the long run. So the Federal Reserve prepared to potentially see this increase in unemployment, which is something the White House obviously does not want to say it's rooting for in any way. Look, when we look at the recent economic indicators and we look at the, da- the, the data, it is not consistent with a recession or even a precursory period. And the White House is sort of trying to look at this data that has come in and say it's still really strong. We have this booming jobs market. We respect the Fed's independence. But of course, they don't want to acknowledge that there might have to be a little bit of a downturn, this cooling off period to have this longer term effect of bringing down inflation, because that does not look good politically to be rooting for that in any way. And it really does put them in, in a tricky situation. Yeah, and, and speaking of like rooting for layoffs, like just yesterday we saw another like a digital media company announce big layoffs. We've seen that around the tech space. You and I have talked about that. But then we also learned that American Airlines pilots under a new deal are going to get like a six-figure raise. They're going to be making almost $600,000 a year. Is this a moment where companies are tightening their belts or not? You know, some of this comes down to the industry or the company specific. If they look like, at- Should I quit podcasting <laughs> to become a pilot, Elizabeth? This is my question. You know- I think that there are, you know, Brad. I would love to fly in a plane with you. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about that. Really, I'm thinking about that closely. Careful but, what you wish for. Yeah. <laughs> I think you know what what it comes down to is that a lot of companies have expressed caution about the future, and so maybe there is some tightening of belts in specific industries that we've talked about, like tech or media, that had this hyper growth. They have reined in. They have had some layoffs. But generally, the overall reality in the jobs market is still that there are more job openings than there are unemployed workers. And we got new data yesterday reflecting that, showing that there are still millions of available jobs and that companies are having to take steps like big pay raises to try to hire them in. The expectation is that hiring is still going to be pretty strong. If you if you look at tomorrow's jobs report, 200,000 jobs is the general expectation. That is still really solid hiring. And even as we're talking about this possibility from the Federal Reserve of, of bigger job losses, right now, this is a strong jobs market. If people are unemployed, generally, they are able to find another job. And in an industry where wages are still going up, but in many industries, wages still not going up enough to keep pace with inflation, which gets back to why the Federal Reserve is still so worried about inflation in the first place, Brad. Yeah, it's as if the Fed's trying to be like, we'll show you for hiring all these new people. All right, Elizabeth Schulze, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Brad. If you've been following the immigration debate this week, you know while people have lots of theories on what not to do, very few politicians seem to know what we should do. And what he wants to do is build a system, build an immigration system uh, that is secure, that is orderly, and that is humane. The latest news this week was that the White House, according to sources, has considered reinstating a policy of detaining families crossing the border, a policy that under former President Trump was considered so barbarous that Biden repealed it during his first year in office. I'm not going to speak to rumors. There are rumors out there. Clearly, the Department of Homeland Security is working through ways on how to move 
forward once Title 42 is lifted. Source tells ABC News that the plan being considered would not be identical to Trump's, children would not be taken away from their parents, and the detention would be for days, not weeks. But the fact that it's even being considered is seen by many immigrant families as a sign that even the policies they become familiar with over the years might not be sticking around. That includes DACA, the decade-old program that allows some children of undocumented immigrants to live without fear of being deported. It's no longer clear that policy will remain in place, and you're seeing something that would have once been considered unthinkable. DACA recipients deciding to leave this country voluntarily. They're self-deporting. ABC senior Washington reporter Devin Dwyer has been reporting on this, and Devin, I thought the whole point of this program was to keep these young people in the country that is, for many, like the only home they've ever known. These are young people, Brad, who, for all intents and purposes are American. They they came here uh, by no choosing of their own. Their parents brought them when they were two, three, four years old, grew up in American schools, and in a lot of cases now graduated American colleges. And President Obama created this temporary program, DACA as it's known, to sort of be a Band-Aid to help these kids um, not only stay in the country, but be able to continue their, their studies, get jobs in this country, work authorization. They are Americans in their heart, in their minds, in every single way but one, on paper. It was a two-year program that these kids could renew. Uh, well, last October, a federal appeals court um, out of New Orleans, the Fifth Circuit, a conservative court, struck down the program in its entirety, said it was illegally conceived from the beginning. And just about any expert you talk to says this was bound to happen at some point. It was meant to be a temporary program. The writing is on the wall. And now we're starting to see a growing number of these DACA recipients making the gut-wrenching decision to, in many cases, leave their families behind, their careers behind, their dreams behind, in the only country they've essentially truly known. Here's the suitcase. Yeah, so here's, I'm probably gonna have to take a couple of these. And the challenge being, you know, once I leave, it's not like I can come back. Like, I, I have to make sure I do it all at once, so. So a couple of suitcases is your whole life right yeah. now. A few weeks ago, Brad, I, I spent some time with Miguel. We're withholding his last name. He asked us to help protect his privacy. 23-year-old grad student uh, at St. Joseph's University up just outside Philadelphia. So you love the Eagles? I do. Yeah, big Eagles fan. And he is someone who has just made the decision recently, after 20 years in America, um, to leave, to head to Canada in his case. I still consider myself a dreamer in the sense that I'm a DACA recipient, but I'm done dreaming. I want a real life. He was born in Colombia, came to this country at four years old, seeking asylum as, uh, with his parents. Uh, they never received that asylum. They never received green cards. I don't think a lot of people know how the asylum system works. It's you have to fit into these five, quote, protected categories. And if you don't fit into this legal definition um, that was probably written by somebody in an armchair that doesn't know what it's like to have to flee your country, um, it doesn't matter. As a teenager, he learned about his undocumented immigrant status. He applied for DACA. He got it. He renewed four or five times. Spent, he told me, more than $10,000 uh, in legal fees and application fees just to be able to, to work and to live in the country. What's been the toughest part of being undocumented in this country? I think probably the lack of stability, but also, I mean, it's just the fact that very few people understand um, our, our plight and our struggle. I was struck, Brad, by the, our conversation with Miguel about how confident he was in, in making this decision. Confident the whole conversation, Brad, until we got in the car. 
Miguel took me on a drive through his Philly neighborhood, uh, and all of a sudden, he just broke down out of the blue. The psychological burden of being uh, unsure of whether you'll be able to stay in this country, whether Congress will will be able to enact a, a status adjustment for these, you know, three and a half million young people really got to him. Like, why can't Congress just do something about this? It's not. And with the help of some colleagues and, and, and peers, made the decision to rebuild his life in Canada, and he will head there in just a few weeks. Like you can almost hear the difference between the brave face he's putting on all day and then that moment where you're with him, Devin, it's just really hitting him. He might not come back to this country. Where You said Canada for him. Where are these people going generally? Yeah, I, I talked to Tawita Wahabzadeh, Brad. She's an Afghan-born former DACA recipient who already made this jump. She's in Canada. She grew up in Nevada. She left just at the start of the pandemic in February 2020. In fact, she told me she threw herself a self-deportation party. It was a huge party for me to basically say goodbye to um, a lot of my friends. And she now has a network, an online support network of these former DACA recipients and dreamers Mm. who are headed overseas called Onward. But how many members do you have? Well, I would say well over 500 members, but those aren't dreamers who have left. Those are dreamers who are looking at the idea of leaving. They're going to countries that are welcoming skilled, talented young people uh, with open arms and also in, in many cases, Brad, uh, looking for entrepreneurs, looking for healthcare workers. I do not have any regrets about self-deporting. I met uh, Monsi Hernandez. We Zoomed. She's living in Germany now, spent 20 years in the United States, wanted to be a social worker, said she couldn't take it anymore, the uncertainty under DACA. So she left and she is now a social worker in Germany. I've been offered a position to be a social worker in Greece, and I'm really hoping that we'll be able to move to Greece sometime in the next year. So Spanish, English, German... Sounds like you're learning Greek. You're going to speak a lot of languages. In college, I had no future. I had no prospects. I couldn't use the skill sets or the education that I obtained. I was essentially stuck. These DACA recipients are healthcare workers, teachers, engineers. Um, you know, many independent studies say um, ending the program, kicking them out of the country, will cost billions of dollars in lost tax revenue, income, GDP growth. Is the possibility the program gets struck down a big part of the conversation right now? Definitely, and I think that's why we've had an increase of um, membership. The court case that's that's looming, maybe by the end of the year we could see the program struck down, is really unsettling a lot of people. And I have to say the Biden administration has said they're working on a fix. They're trying to come up with some new justification for a DACA-like program or a DACA extension. Uh, but there's no certainty, Brad, and that's what so many of these young people are looking for. And I don't have that right now because I'm living my life in two-year increments. All I want is just to have a nice apartment or a nice home, uh, a dog. My dream is just to have a stable life, and unfortunately, I don't feel that that's going to happen here. Yeah, and this phrase, self-deportation, this is not a thing you came up with, Devin. It's not even something that these DACA recipients named. I remember Mitt Romney talking about how this would be the ideal thing, to have people self-deport back in the day. When we talked about the children of undocumented immigrants now, it definitely appears that that's the case for this growing number of people who would, who do, call themselves Americans. Uh, Devin Dwyer, thanks a lot. Thanks, Brad. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, finally, it's time to get rejected in person again. One last thing is next. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And one last thing. The Oscars are around the corner in which the biggest stars in Hollywood will be applauded for their roles of a lifetime. But in recent days, the talk of the town is all about how actors get selected for jobs in the first place. Don't make me fight you. I'm really, really good. I don't believe you. Say that again. Don't make me find you. I don't believe you. This is the audition tape for actress Stephanie Hsu, who's been nominated for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Deadline Hollywood obtained her audition tape. I don't believe you! <laughs> generally, okay. this is how auditions look. An actor on a low-quality camera reading with someone just off screen. Often that person's a casting director or casting director's assistant. But recently, that hasn't been an option. The only thing I miss about in-person is demeanor evidence. The moments prior to the audition where an actor comes into the room and you see what they're wearing and you see if they have a limp handshake or a firm handshake. That's Todd Thaler, a New York-based casting director, and he loves auditions. You might be someone we like, but we hated the way you did the scene, and we say, try it another way. Try it this way. Since the pandemic began, though, in-person auditions have become a thing of the past. Instead, many actors have been asked to self-tape their auditions, get themselves on camera, and then send that footage into people like Todd. There are some actors who say, I love it. I get to decide which performance I send. I get to live in New Hampshire and have a beautiful backyard and raise my kids, and I just send my content wherever they need it. And this sounds like any other profession right now, right? People had to work remotely, so they figured it out. Frankly, Todd says, it wasn't a huge deal since some actors have been doing this for years. But as productions have ramped back up and as technology has rapidly evolved during the pandemic, something's changed. Actors say expectations are rising. Someone said, oh, actors are telling me, casting directors are telling them they have to get a blue screen, they have to get a ring light, they have to have a high-definition recording device. That was frustrating news for struggling actors. Think about it, you're probably working a side job just to make rent while you wait for that big break. Now you got to spend your hard-earned cash on a professional microphone? But the outrage reached a new level recently when some casting offices started renting studio space for actors to tape these auditions that might have been in person a few years prior. You're not supposed to pay just to conduct a remote job interview, are you? This notion of actors having to pay to make more professional self-tapes I just think is a travesty. Thaler says no way. And over the last few days, lots of established casting directors have insisted that if you're paying to audition, you're getting scammed. One of my colleagues said, that's such I work for Martin Scorsese. He doesn't care if he's watching an audition from an actor sitting in front of a blue screen or sitting in their living room. Is that true for you, Todd? Do you care like what somebody looks like? You're telling me it doesn't matter like how good their lighting is or something? I am telling you it does not matter how good their lighting is. And I pressed him on this because I wanted to know, what if you're an actress auditioning to be a bombshell? You really don't think a professional setup or a professional makeup artist paid by the hour would help? He insists, no, casting directors can see through all this, he says. That's their job. Whether you believe Thaler or not, 
Actors have been complaining for years that costs that used to be covered by others are now being borne by them. Producers used to pay for audition space, now an actor needs to find a quiet spot of their own. Casting directors would read those lines back to you, now hope you got a good friend willing to work for free. Even if your tapes aren't expected to be pristine, in any competitive, crowded job field, you're going to start looking over your shoulder, going, I'm not getting the work I want. What does that other person have that I don't? Which made me wonder, do I have what it takes? What do you think of my space right here? Like, what do you think? Of, could this be a good audition space? Do you have any tips? No, you are in a medium close-up and you are good to go. I don't think I'm gonna make money as an actor anytime soon, but in this economy, maybe I could start renting out my office to someone who will. You know, I was actually an actor before I was a journalist. Oh, how'd that go for you, Brad? Well, I'm here, you guys, so I hope you're enjoying the show. Start here tomorrow, hit subscribe if you haven't already, you'll get a new episode every morning. I'm Brad Milkey, living the real dream now. I'll see you tomorrow. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.